Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. We're continuing our, our coverage of the uh, um, Gaza conflict with uh, an, another important voice. So we're, we're happy to welcome to the show uh, Leila Al-Sheikh, who is a DSA organizer and a writer on Palestinian issues, um, has, has a, an article in Jacobin that just came out, uh, I believe it was today, Friday, when we're recording this. Um, so welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm uh, very happy to be here. Yeah, I, I thought, um, you know, to to kick the discussion off a little bit, maybe we could review sort of the, the, the latest um, news, you know, so Biden has visited Israel um, and it appears as 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 though Israel is is preparing an invasion, possibly, um, and and uh, it's f- fairly unclear about you know what precisely is going to happen. But ha- um, what's your read on like the latest sort of you know over the last week, basically, of what's happening in, in Gaza? Uh, so. I would say that in essence, what we're looking at is uh, what I wrote in Jacobin and what I'm writing elsewhere in uh, Descent and some other places that will come out soon, is that this is the most volatile crisis that we're looking at since 1948, I think. It is already a deadlier event for Israelis than the entirety of the Second Intifada. Um, and this is shaping up to be significantly deadlier than 2014 or 1988, um, and the psychological wounds for Palestinians are far greater than Sabra and Shatila in 1982. Um, and yes, we are uh, we are looking at a ground invasion, as far as we can tell. Uh, I saw that, uh, ABC, just before coming on, I saw the ABC News uh, reports that the Israeli military has a green light to move into Gaza, um, and that uh, Barak Ravid of Axios uh, reported immediately following Biden's visit to Israel, that uh, Biden didn't really set a parameter against a ground invasion, but rather was only looking for a defined war goal, uh, which the Israelis did not really provide. Uh, to what extent we know that there's a war goal uh, is very limited. Uh, Israeli officials are having a public spat with one another, the defense minister, the finance minister, um, over what they perceive to be a victory in this scenario. And for Gazans, um, we're looking at the deadliest sustained airstrike campaign ever. Um, we're looking at mass displacements. I think AP and the Gazan Health Ministry have both reported that over 400,000 uh, Gazans have been already internally displaced. Um, so this is a significant refugee crisis. And then something that's under, under discussed, um, is that the occupied West Bank is on fire at the moment. Uh, over 65 Palestinians in the occupied West Bank have been killed since the crisis began on October 7th. And settlers are rampaging throughout the region, uh, to, uh, by now it's likely more, but I haven't been able to confirm that two villages, as far as I know, have been depopulated entirely. And so, uh, at least as, as of recording this, we're on the precipice of a regional war. We're on the precipice of something that could be much bigger than what it already is. And I would say that's where we're looking at right now. 
Yeah, I'd uh, I'd just like to to add a, a comment on something I've noticed personally. Uh, this has been the like biggest sort of international emergency uh, where the total degradation of Twitter has really come to the fore, you know, I mean, say what you like about the previous regime before Elon Musk bought it, but like it used to be that you could go to Twitter and with a little bit of work, you could, you could find like an un- unprecedented, like, um, real time view into what was going on on the ground, um, in, in any sort of crisis like this. And, you know, Probably certain aspects of of this conflict make that would have made that harder. But now Twitter, I would say, is basically worthless as far as trying to fig- get accurate information. Um, there's just all kinds of dif- disinformation flying around on there. There's no way to tell really anymore. Um, you know what? Who who is uh, you know actually who they say they are? You know the verification badges are all but worthless. You know it's like ah, oh, you're verified to have paid eight dollars. And anyway, you just you uh, you know see. I think was maybe a semi intentional purpose of Elon Musk buying this in the first place to basically just uh, flood the zone with shit, as as Steve Bannon has said. And yeah, you you really feel the absence of Twitter. Um, Twitter reporting and and perspectives and how confusing it has been and how many different claims of like, oh, there was a hospital blown up. Was the hospital blown up by the IDF? Was it blown up by Hamas? What? How many people died? And all this and people just like having these super heated arguments back and forth about stuff where you can't even find, you know, a, a consistent, you know, picture from, from you know, what actually happened. Um, and, you know, it's it's a real shame. Um uh before we go on about the the you know more about the current you know crisis uh you know you're you're an expert in like palestinian history um and uh i i thought it would be worthwhile you know uh or in our previous episode david cleans you know said he's you know he he knows the the basic like like gist of things but he's not so um you know read up on the 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 details um and you mentioned 1948. Obviously, that's when Israel was, you know, first established. Uh, but since then, you know, basically, can you can you tell us a little bit about the history of 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 Gaza and the occupation post like 1973? You know, in 67, right? You had the Six Day War, uh, which Israel won easily. Then in 73, you had the Yom Kippur War where Israel was ambushed and it was, it was a sort of close run thing. And then after that, you've had like this period of, you know, um, basically trying to perpetuate the occupation. Uh, so can you tell us about that? Yes. Um, and I think that's a, this is an important node to connect to our current day because, uh, of the psychological impact, which I'll get to in a second, but, as far as the history of Gaza goes, um, and Cleon, I think, did a wonderful job of giving a cursory introduction to the uh, identity and uh, importance of Gaza for Palestinians more than, I want to think, I believe it's 70%, more than 70% of Gazans are direct descendants of people who were displaced by the Nekba. And um, since the Israeli occupation. From the Israeli occupation of around 1973 onward, um, 
the administration of Gaza, like that of the rest of the occupied territories, involved a system of fragmentation, of intentional uh, dissolution of Palestinian civil society. Um, and this is really when, over time, we saw the erosion of the secular nationalist movements uh, in Fatah and in the uh, various socialist and Marxist-Leninist and otherwise left-wing-leaning organizations uh, like the PFLP or various groups that were more uh, self-described communistic. Um, and this is when the Muslim Brotherhood's uh, branch in Gaza, now known as Hamas, essentially, um, became very effective at establishing a social base. Um, something that you'll hear on Twitter, to your point about misinformation and, and shallow uh, understanding, uh, a lot of people rightfully point out that Bibi Netanyahu has a history of promoting Hamas as a means of uh, maintaining the fracture in Palestinian politics. But not many people understand that Hamas has a genuine social base uh, that goes back to the 1980s, goes back further uh, in its establishment of masjids and its establishments of charities and hospitals, and that it provided an alternative after the left wing was assassinated, sabotaged, uh, internally fragmented over various things. And this sets the stage eventually for the Oslo world to have this uh, dramatic split in the 2005-2006 elections where uh, Hamas essentially took over the Gaza Strip um, after Israel had ceded control in agreement with Oslo in, in, in some form of self-government. Um, which we now know that the degradation of Oslo is in large part what has led to this engendered crisis of occupation and of apartheid. Can you hang on? To, um, sorry to interrupt. Can you can you explain what the Oslo Accords were, just in case listeners haven't heard of them? Oh, of course. Um, so uh, in the late 1980s, after decades of frustration about this lack of a viable pathway for self determination, um, Palestinians who had a decade prior, uh, seen a bit of a rejuvenation with regards to their political identity. Um, insofar as, uh, going back to the, going back to 1967 for a real quick second, um, Palestinians in Israel proper had lived for 20 years as citizens and yet citizens who were subject to martial law, exclusively ethnic imposed martial law only applied to them. And in 1966, that was lifted. And that gave them a new opportunity to interact with the wider Arab world. They were no longer so systematically uh, surveilled and limited in their movement. But then, of course, in 1967, one year later, um, the occupation of the rest of historic Palestine uh, commenced. And this had a paradoxical effect of bringing the Palestinians in the occupied territories that we know now and the Palestinians who are citizens of Israel closer together. They were now under effectively the same sovereign state's control. Um, and those 10 years of reunification of sorts, albeit under different legal regimes, allowed for a festering of frustration, allowed for a new 
sense of this problem being uh, lodged in place. And eventually the First Intifada broke out. And the First Intifada was a mixture of nonviolent, violent, uh, decentralized protest movements. It involved village councils. It involved various political parties vying for uh, a position as the vanguard of the Palestinian National Liberation Movement. Um, and the First Intifada was largely successful in bringing people towards sympathy for Palestine. And this eventually led to the Oslo Accords in the 1990s between the PLO, which was recognized as by the UN and by the US as the legitimate representative of the Palestinian people and the Israeli state. And essentially what the Oslo Accords did is the Palestinian Liberation Organization recognized Israel and in exchange was provided a degree of self-government with the promise of future talks on the establishment of a Palestinian state. And if you listen, if you go back and look at contemporary criticisms of Arafat and of the PLO by men like Edward Said or men uh, who had served as an advisor to Arafat at one point, by men like those, one of the central criticisms of Basel was that it didn't actually promise in ironclad terms an independent Palestinian state. And so five years after the creation of the first Oslo Accord, the horizon was again narrowed. And here we are in 2023 with no independent Palestinian state and a sort of Bantustan system in the West Bank. And we have the siege in Gaza, which has existed since 2006, an 18-year siege. Uh, and that is more or less the horizon that we have right now. Sorry, Leila, you mentioned that the Oslo Accords led to Israel leaving Gaza. And so just so people understand, uh, Israel was ruling like military rule in Gaza. And then as a result of the Oslo Accords, um, it became the open air prison where like they, they took control from the outside, but, but were no longer within it as they are in the West Bank. Um, and then so that coupled with what would come in terms of, uh, all the settlements and settlers that would encroach in, in, in the West Bank and Palestinian territory. Um, you know, those things, maybe you could talk a bit about how those things have uh, accelerated uh, the problem since uh, and frustrated the, the, the very purpose of Oslo, right? Yes. Um, it's a rather paradoxical issue for Israelis and Palestinians. Uh, the evacuation in 2005 was a very traumatic experience for the Israeli settlers who lived in the area of where that line had been uh, prior to the establishment of the current southern Israeli border. Um, and so many on the right in Israel saw that as a, we can never do that again sort of thing. And so now withdrawal from the West Bank is really out of the question for them, unilaterally, so to speak. Um, and Despite the evacuation occurring, the Israelis have maintained control of uh, food, air, sea, uh, the electricity, quite, quite literally everything as far as I could think um, about the Gaza Strip's functions. And this is something that has gone on for, you know, actually more than half of my life, I'm only uh, 22 years old and the uh, siege of Gaza, the permanent siege of Gaza uh, has lasted for 18 years. Um, and so I do not remember a time where Gaza 
was not under siege. And this has done quite a many things. Uh, Gaza is over 50% impoverished. Gaza is, uh, as you said, an open-air prison. Um, this, The symbolism of Gaza to Palestinian people is in many ways the epitome of what the occupation is. Um, you'll see people nitpick, is Gaza occupied? In all but essence, it is. Um, and I might be incorrect about the technicalities, but I'm fairly sure the UN still considers Israel responsible for what occurs in the Gaza Strip, considering that it controls all the mechanisms of day-to-day life in Gaza. Um, and this failure of Oslo uh, is very apparent now in the West Bank. Um, you might hear if you ever go on Arabic language Twitter, for example, that Abbas is often uh, referred to by Arabs and Israelis alike as the mayor of Ramallah. Uh, so to indicate that he doesn't have very much control at all. Um, he's a vassal in many ways, a sub subcontractor of the occupation as uh, like magazines as such as 972 might say. Um, and so what we're really looking at is the, I think the closing chapter of Oslo and this crisis without a significant change in strategy from the United States and others is going to lead to a new status quo. What that might look like, I'm not sure. Right, because Oslo, the idea was a two-state solution would be the goal. And with uh, the behavior of Israel backed by the United States, that seems less and less likely. And and, and now maybe you have a a different view, but now it seems like either a one-state solution or genocide are the options, frankly. Yes, um, I would say, speaking in my own personal capacity, that I'm rather sympathetic to uh, one-staterism. I have not been around for this idea of a viable two-state solution. I recognize that many uh, older Palestinians uh, and many older Jews um, still hold on to this uh, peacenik-esque, we can partition sort of attitude. And in fairness to them, uh, I think to give them the sort of benefit of the doubt, uh, Cleon talked about the naivete of liberal Zionism, and I certainly agree uh, considering my perspective, but in the historical context, partition is not all that rare. Um, it's just that the historical conditions for Israel-Palestine has more or less precluded it. Um, and that's partly because the United States and other powers have never really been interested in uh, providing the foundation. Um, they've almost always been uniformly Israel, uh, pro-Israel, that is. Um, and so whether or not the viability of partition is dead is something that I don't think I could effectively diagnose, but I certainly would think that a one-state solution is preferable from my point of view. Um, I think Talib a couple months ago, actually, she's, as far as I know, she is the only congressperson who supports a democratic equal state of both peoples between the Mediterranean and the Jordan. And she uh, in a sort of shocking way, expressed that she doesn't want many of these longer-lasting settlements in the occupied territories to be so forcefully dis- 
loved it or uprooted just for a partition plan. Um, and she showed a, a rare sort of compassion for the occupying powers, uh, settler colonial class. Um, I'm not sure what to make of it myself, but I think it's, uh, thought provoking. And I think over time, one statism is going to be more and more attractive to people precisely because Oslo has died and nobody is really working to sustain it anymore. Yeah. I mean, this, you know, sort of the logic of it, I've, I've read an argument from Josh Marshall that like you have these, these two peoples that have just like such a history of, of bitter fighting, you know, between them, like, how are they possibly going to live in the same, you know, state? But you just look at the practicalities, you know, as, as Rashida Tlaib was pointing out, it's like, how, how is this a viable state? You know, like, like you mentioned the Bantu stands before, you know, a reference to South African apartheid where you had these, uh, these little fake countries, one of them where I, I lived in South Africa in a former homeland where the home, homeland, quote unquote, of the Tswana people, Boputatswana, which is just these little fragments of territory that went all over the place. Like, how on earth are you going to, uh, you know, make a viable Palestinian state where it's like, on the one hand, there's just like absolutely wretchedly impoverished chunk of territory in the Gaza Strip. And then the West Bank, which is just absolutely cobwebbed with, with settlements all over the place. You know, it's like the very idea, you know, it's, it's a, you sort of, it's like, like some kind of Holy Roman Empire-esque little like, ch- like divvies, chunks of territory that, that, you know, don't make any sort of consistent sense. Um, but yeah, really, really, Ryan, that the only and this is simple, but not easy. The only obstacle is the ethno supremacy, right, of, of Zionism and, and the idea that there can't be a state that isn't um, Jewish ethno nationalist, uh, you know, in its formation. And, and if but once you lose that, it's a big thing to lose, of course. But once you lose that, then then the practicalities and possibilities seem a lot more. Um, amenable than than a two state solution, right? Yeah, yeah, and it, well, and boy, it's hard to see, but um, it's hard to see. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, as you've been as you've been talking about, Layla, the 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 uh, the current reality of just like indefinitely perpetuating the status quo occupation that's been Israeli policy. That was why they were propping up Islamist groups in the eighties. In 90s, and that's why uh, Netanyahu has explicitly said that supporting Hamas is the right idea, explicitly so that you can d- divide the Palestinians, classic divide and rule type stuff from like the British Empire, prevent the formation of a United Palestinian Front, and like look what that got you, you know. Uh, and so, like, maybe you need a change of policy. Um, and maybe that brings us back to, you know, talking about current events a little bit. Um, can can you d- discuss, um, you know, the, the Biden administration's reaction to this? You know, because it seems like we're seeing a pretty classic, the, the Biden uh, White House sort of two-faced posture on this. We had an, at first like total lockstep support for Israel. Then some officials started talking about, well, you know, uh, not every Gazan is a member of Hamas. Let's not, you know, commit war crimes. Um, and yet now, you know, Biden seems to have given them a green light, except maybe saying like, well, you need a plan, you know, for, for how this invasion is going to go. I don't know. What what are your thoughts on, on how Biden's responded to this? 
Uh, well, I have two lanes for my thoughts on the Biden administration's response so far. Uh, but first, I'm going to uh, note something. And I, I feel bad that I don't remember the author's name off the top of my head. But I read a thought-provoking piece this morning about the comparisons between now and May 2021. And for those who may not remember, may not be aware, May 2021 uh, is was what Arab uh, Arab Palestinian Arabs would call the unity intifada, so to speak. It's when uh, the protests in Sheikh Jarrah exploded, and it's when uh, Jerusalemites and everyone across Israel proper, so to speak, the 48 territories known to us, and the occupied territories um, sort of unified for the first time in a long time since Land Day in the 1970s. Um and this then led into the Israel-Hamas war of May and June 2021. And the Biden administration's response at the time was largely to offer unconditional support in public and then use that unconditional support in public as a way of then in private trying to pull back the Israeli uh, government from intentionally inflaming things further. And... Some observers think that's the case here. Obviously, the issue with that is that in this case, unlike May 2021, which was still quite awful, um, in this case, we have open genocide years in government. Uh, we have people speaking of a second Nakba, both in the Likud party and in religious Zionism and in Jewish power. Uh, these are all uh, right-wing, far-right parties. Uh, the ministers, Smotrich and ben they talk of mass displacement or of sending us to Europe. Um, this is a new reality. And even if one was able to excuse the Biden administration's theory of operation in May 2021, it's not really the same here. Um, offering such uncritical support from the very beginning when they were immediately calling for the... Uh, demolition of Gaza or the annexation of Gaza and the mass displacement of all those who live there, um, quite obviously not very good. From my perspective as a Palestinian and as a Palestinian-American, it's uh, very heartbreaking. Uh, it's not like I expect much from a center-left president, from someone who ran on a pretty milquetoast liberal Zionist-esque platform. But as a Palestinian, personally, it remains daunting that this is what the leader of my country is doing in relation to my homeland. As a socialist, as a DSA, uh, I have to remember that everyone has a relationship to power and that this president's shift, albeit small thus far, is in response to the growing dissent within the Democratic Party. I wrote a piece in July with Foreign Policy about how the growing discontent among young people is not just because Bibi Netanyahu is uh, infatuated with the right wing of the of the United States, of the Republican Party, of Trump, um, but also because young Americans are growing up at a time where Black Lives Matter is at the forefront of their minds. Uh, they're growing up at a time where there are multiple Muslim women in Congress. They're growing up at a time where AOC is one of the leading voices of democratic socialist thought. And they're hearing over and over again uh, stuff that's more accurate to the reality of Palestinians, that this is a system of apartheid according to B'Tselem and 
the Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and the United Nations that this is a systematic regime across both sides of the Green Line. And so I think that this demonstrates that Biden has a new balancing act to make. Um, if I recall, and I, I'll have, I'll have to disclaim that I don't remember off the top of my head, more young Americans, young Democratic voters from 18 to the age 18 to 34 disapproved of Biden's handling of the Gaza war in May 2021 than approved. That is a significant number. And I, as far as I understand, it's not really changing this time around. More young Democrats are disapproving than one would have expected. And that's going to have an impact over time. Um, and that's why uh, I find the not all Gazans of Hamas thing to be a pretty funny talking point, but that's why it's something they're saying now. That was very interesting, that, that piece, Leila. I, I especially was struck. It, it made sense to me that the demographics in the United States, the, the younger the generation, the, the more pro-Palestinian and, and um the, the group was. Uh, I was surprised to see that young evangelical Americans, however, uh, also shifted from like 60 something percent to 33 percent support of the occupation. Um, that did strike me as very different and, and surprising and interesting. Um, but I think uh, old people like Biden, they're being told by their staffers. I, that's one of the, the benefits of Twitter and, and I think uh, TikTok and all these things is that it becomes much more apparent to, to the people running the show, the staffers, uh, what the, the, the sense is, uh, right? And yeah, so go ahead and maybe, maybe speak to that a little bit. Well, I think um, I'm sure you both saw, uh, and I think uh, I mentioned it in the Jacobin piece, um, 400 or so, perhaps it's more now, 400 or so congressional staffers signed on to a letter, Muslim and Jewish. I think it's noteworthy that it's a Muslim and Jewish uh, staff letter uh, demanding a ceasefire. Um, and uh, I don't think in the grand scheme that's actually – representative of so many offices, but I think it's representative of a significant amount in the Democratic caucus. Um, and that this represents something real happening. Uh, the State Department official, uh, Joshua Paul, Josh Paul, uh, resigned. And what, what's noteworthy to me, um, is that he's not been isolated, so to speak, from the people who still work there. The people who still work there are reaching out to him, according to him. They're continuing to express discontent. The Huffington Post said that the, there's a, a quote-unquote mutiny brewing in the State Department over this. Um, and yes, uh, my friend uh, Abe Silverstein in New York, who works for the Abraham Initiatives, has noted many times that this is also going to become a problem for future Democratic administrations when it comes to staffing people in the State Department. Many young people do not adhere to this uh, blob uh, mind speak, so to speak, about uh, the occupation. The, in fact, the Republicans, I, I forget her name or his name, I don't remember. Uh, the Republicans held up a nomination for someone in the State Department for months on end because of uh, tweets that they had made uh, criticizing the Israeli regime. And then eventually the Biden administration went through it. I was pleasantly surprised they even put this person forward, but um, the Republicans dropped it. Uh, force them to drop it. And so this is going to become a problem uh, far beyond Biden. And I think 
that's why even Thomas Friedman of the New York Times a while ago, maybe a couple months ago, said that Biden might be the quote unquote last faux Israel Democrat. I'm not so I'm not as optimistic as Mr. Friedman, but he's significantly to our right. So uh, I suppose he might have something to say there. It's probably relevant too that not only is Biden being pushed and, and feeling uh, the pressure domestically, but uh, other foreign leaders, uh, Arab states, uh, European states, are also seeing these mass protests, uh, you know, of, of their people, and uh, people are not happy with the the lack of leadership and action to stop the ethnic cleansing, the genocide. Um, it, it, you know, it, it might not be a majority of people here, there, or otherwise, but in politics, it doesn't have to be a majority. A, a, a vocal uh, activist minority can do a lot of things, uh, especially when connected internationally. Yes. Um, something that uh, a lot of people tend to misunderstand about the Arab world in particular is that it is certainly true that the Arab regimes don't care very much about Palestine. Um, they are autocratic. They have a capitalist structure. They care about normalization for economic purposes. But the Arab people, uh, for a variety of reasons, historic, uh, related to pan-Arabism, just related to an affinity for the post, affinity to the decolonial cause, so to speak, still very much care about Palestine. Um, and ne- we're seeing the largest protests in Egypt and in Iraq since the Arab Spring. Um, and I, I won't make, I can't make a definitive comment on what happened with the hospital. Um, I think a lot of people jumped the gun. But what I can say about the hospital attack is that now for Arabs, it matters that it, that it got, it burned in any case. And the frustration about the siege has, spilled over and the reason why the king of Jordan and the president Sisi of Egypt canceled that summit is because they understand that if they were to meet with the president of the United States who is so openly for Israel, Israel, uh, it would not be good for them. Uh, it's not a politically tenable position. Um, they still are holding behind the scenes talks. They still want to supply aid. They still want to mitigate the worst excesses of this possible regional war. But we are at a point where the U.S.'s reputation is uh, suffering deeply among Arabs. Um, And then in Europe, of course, uh, you might have seen that France uh, banned certain forms of demonstrations, and then French people all go out anyway in massive droves into Paris. Um, And likewise, uh, the photo criminalization of pro-Palestinian demonstrations in Berlin doesn't really prevent uh, Jewish Berliners from coming out or Arab Berliners from coming out. So this is certainly evoking a response that political leaders may not have expected. Uh, and it proves that even after 75 years or 56 years, if that's your preference uh, for reference point, uh, people still care about Palestine, and I think they'll continue to. Yeah, in that context, um, can you talk a little bit about the international diplomatic context uh, or geostrategic context, maybe is a better word for it? Um, you know, because like, as you've been mentioning, you can sort of see the cold-blooded realpolitik, you know, um, 
reasons for uh, Biden to support Israel, you know, like like Americans historically have been more pro-Israel. There's there's been some polling out saying that, you know, most like the plurality of people think that Biden's doing a good job. And then like 30, another 32 percent say he's not being aggressive enough in backing Israel, though, whether or not he could actually get that support. But in any way is probably uh, questionable. Um, but, you know, it, it setting aside the sort of like in, you know, immediate details or whether like Israel is, 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 um, justified in like sort of, you know, attacking back at Hamas, you could really see this becoming a horrible, uh, just another festering disaster that, that goes on and on, you know, like, like Hezbollah could be, could get involved in a war uh, or even just a war itself, if Israel invades, you know, you're looking at possibly brutal, brutal house to house fighting. That was, you know, if you if you look at the uh, 2004, like the Battle of Fallujah, where it was just like street by street, an incredibly dense and dangerous place, you know, fighting irregulars um, that would that would no doubt inflict probably thousands of, of, of uh, casualties on the Israeli military. And then, as you say, you know, it's like you're you're looking at massive backlash across the Arab world. And, you know, it's not hard to see how that might, you know, inspire a revival of kind of the uh, old fashioned Islamist terrorism, you know, in the Al Qaeda mold, which, you know, thankfully has been relatively quiet over the last like decade or so. And so, you know, if I'm Biden, surely I'm looking at this and being like, oh, boy, you know, like like maybe this seems like politically sensible now, but it could go really bad. And in a similar like it reminds me of the the withdrawal from Afghanistan or it was like everybody hated him for doing that. It was really, you know, uh, uh, unpopular and humiliating to just sort of like eat that punch and just be like, we can't do this occupation anymore because if we keep doing it, it's going to be worse. It's going to be even more unpopular and and bloody and terrible. Um, do you think there's any sort of potential for that sort of reasoning to come in, you know, either, either from, uh, you know, the, the Biden administration or, or Europe, you know, which, which, uh, I'm sure views the prospect of like another 4 million Palestinian refugees being like dumped onto Greece and Italy with, with abject horror. Um, what are your thoughts there? Yes, I think um, I think this is really as much as I would like to think personally that the domestic uh, coalitional forces is uh, the primary pressure point for the Biden administration. I think we're getting there to some extent, but I think the real pressure for the Biden administration is preventing this from expanding into Lebanon and expanding into Syria um, and expanding into a Iran versus Israel open war. Um, and I don't think anyone really wants this to happen. Um, Iran is talking a big game. Uh, Hezbollah is talking a big game. These are in large part because they're obligated to, for their political basis, for their social basis. Um, and Israel certainly does not want another, uh, does not want a repeat of the last war that it had with Hezbollah, where it was not, uh, a win for really anybody, but it was not, it was, widely viewed as a very disappointing moment for Israel. Um, and so that's part of why the Biden administration wants a defined war plan. Uh, I was actually pleasantly surprised as someone who's repeatedly disappointed by this president that he 
publicly warned against the uh, annexation of territory in the uh, Gaza Strip. Um, I think he did this partly because the ministers openly speaking of annexation. Uh, the defense minister and the finance minister have both floated with it uh, publicly and in, on the Israeli army radio. Um, but also because I think he genuinely, to whatever extent he's willing to pursue it, he genuinely thinks that a partition eventually would be good for the interest of the United States. Um, it's a shame that this belief does not seem to be prioritized over this obsession with Saudi and Israeli normalization, though, um, which is um, at the crux of this triangulation against Iran. Uh, and for those who don't know, the thrust of the, the Biden administration's policy since early 2021 has been to expand the Abraham Accords. Uh, the Abraham Accords were not his, they were Trump's initially, and he wants to crown an achievement by making what's already a de facto relationship into a de jure one between the Saudis and the Israelis by promising everything under the moon, possibly a civilian nuclear program, possibly a mutual defense treaty with this theocracy in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and so, yes, I think this will require a reconfiguration if they want to avoid disaster. To what extent they're going to do so is beyond me, though. Yeah, the the other thing, by the way, to mention about this is that, you know, the Biden administration is already dealing with uh, a, a big war in Europe, namely the war between Russia and Ukraine. And we've been seeing some of the artillery shells that were earmarked to go to Ukraine now being delivered to Israel instead, you know, which which not only is sort of like harming their their one, you know, trying to back uh, uh, Ukraine from fighting off the Russians, but now is is harming their. They've made some sort of I don't know semi half hearted efforts to like build support for defending Ukraine in the global south, which is quite skeptical for like historical, understandable historical reasons of of this. You know, regards it as like sort of a inter imperialist conflict, whatever. Uh, the perception is, but now, you know, backing Israel to the hilt is like gravely damaging that effort. Um, do you see that playing at all in, into their thinking? Uh, I have no, I, it's very odd to me that this administration, um, well, I mean, it's not particularly surprising, but it is odd to me that this administration has so quickly reoriented its priorities, um, I can't speak to the specificities of the Biden administration's uh, policy on Ukraine, but this um, rapid uh, maneuvering back towards supplying Israel with so much of what it needs uh, for a ground invasion is actually surprising to me when you look at the polling. I don't think the polling for arms transfers to Israel is particularly all that more popular than arms transfers to Ukraine. Um, and so whatever the political calculations may be domestically or beyond me, uh, in terms of international calculations, I do think they genuinely believe to some extent that Israel is a very important bulwark, uh, both as a democracy, so to speak. Of course, we know that it's not really one because a democracy of one nation over another is not a democracy. Um, a democracy to speak and also a bulwark against Iran. That's the primary, uh, guiding light of this administration. Um, and so that's why they're even entertaining a mutual defense treaty with the Saudis. It's something that 
really that's that's one of the things I've been focusing on quite a bit over the last year. Is this something that beggars belief? Uh, even many prominent members of the blob, so to speak, have asked themselves, why is this even on the table? It doesn't really, it, it seems counterintuitive even to the most realpolitik, cynical person's view. But the Biden administration is pursuing it anyway, and it seems to still be doing so. The State Department said a couple of days ago that they're still confident that a deal can be finalized. Just to put a bow on the the Saudi, you know, discussion, the um, like the, the the idea is crazy to me. You know, it's like like you have a this like merciless dictator running this just like a- abject right wing theocracy, who's a close ally of Vladimir Putin, who chopped up a Washington Post columnist, you know, in cold blood, um, and uh, is all but openly uh. uh trying to use the oil supply to like manipulate United States politics, <laughs> you know, and it's like, the, don't, uh, what, what, what are we doing here? And I, yeah, as you say, it's a mystery. Anyway, sorry, I interrupted you, Alexi. No, no, it, it goes to the, to the same point I'm making because as leftists, um, it, one way that we're, I think, successful in, in, in supporting mass politics that shift kind of the, the terrain of what's possible politically is by kind of deflating the normative uh, camouflage or cover that liberals and liberal administrations or reactionary administrations use to prop up the realpolitik. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's important to people like Biden to claim to be on the right side of things when they stand with Israel or when they proclaim that they're fighting for democracy. But, it, you know, in these kind of circumstances, it's not all that hard for leftists to point out that, hey, ethnic cleansing and genocide, that's not um, <laughs> that's not the same thing as being pro-democracy and pro-human rights and uh, pro-freedom and, and pro-self-determination. And the, and the contrast with Ukraine uh, becomes really stark, uh, as you pointed out, Leila, there. And, and, and it's it's never really been the case that it's easy to pull off uh, empire in the United States without pretending, um, you know, without the empire pretending it's doing a good thing. And, and it's much harder to, to get away with those things once it's so clear um, that the powers that be are on the wrong side. Um, and so what, what do you think, Layla, about uh, the potential here for mass politics and for leftists and, and maybe in the context of being a DSA organizer? Um, to like, is it a matter of radicalizing liberals and, and popping the balloon of the status quo consensus about the kind of normative situation? And you can think of other successful, um, shifts in history in the civil rights movement and other places where like people just kind of wake up to the reality of the situation and the evil that's going on, uh, in a way that doesn't make it so easy for, for the elites in power to get away with it, uh, you know, as easily at least. Yes, I certainly think so. Um, obviously within DSA, we have many internal conversations about what is base building and where is our audience first and foremost to build that base and then expand. Um, and, uh, we all have our individual views on that. But with regards to Palestinian liberation, at least I think it's very clear that, uh, there's a great opportunity, um, in light of the Black Lives Matter, uh, Black Lives Matter movement, uh, in light of the, uh, this resentment against Trumpism, uh, that really developed from 2017 onwards. Um, 
against Islamophobia, against anti-Arab sentiment, against anti-African sentiment. Um, I think all of this is cohering together in some way where many people who would identify as liberals, but not necessarily as socialists or as left-wingers, recognize that there's a connection between this myopic, uh, dystopian, even fascistic conservatism in the United States and also the ruling classes of seen wealth. Uh, men like Trump, men like uh, Ron DeSantis, these are not working class men uh, and they prey on people uh, and they use these anxieties and they use these bigotries to apply pressure to the working class's ability to uh, unite. And so with regards to Palestinian liberation, um, now more than ever, people have access to information about what happens in Gaza and the West Bank and in Jerusalem. Now more than ever, people are looking at what happens to the average Palestinian under the day-to-day life of Jewish supremacy. And they say, this is not all that different from what a black person might have experienced 50 years ago. What a black person in some cases experiences now. Um, one of the highlights, one of the biggest issues in 2021 that contributed to this almost sea change of opinion among young people is that George Floyd was murdered within two weeks of a Palestinian who was uh, intellectually disabled, if I remember right, in Jerusalem by Israeli police. And this direct parallel is easy to draw. And once, like you said, Alexi, that, that veneer collapses people flood in, I think. And it's our responsibility as left-wingers, as democratic socialists, as members of a mass organization to to show up to those people who see that that veneer has fallen and to present them with a positive vision for change. Because if we're not doing that, then we're leaving them out in the cold. That's right. And and there's a lot of hope with young people. I I teach college-age students, and I noticed that um, I, I think as much as there's the obvious polarization in, in media and otherwise, there's an underappreciation of how popular Black Lives Matter uh, and the movement for Black Life has been among young people, um, and at least in, in the, my experience teaching college students, to, and the association uh, with Palestinian Lives Matter, I think, was, was a brilliant kind of proxy for for young people who don't know a lot about the politics or the history, but but through the comparison to Black Lives Matter and Palestinian Lives Matter, uh, immediately grasp the kind of stakes and 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 who is being victimized by whom and and, and all of these things. It, it becomes easy to understand and have a pathway into understanding the dynamics of the injustice. Um, and just a small anecdote, even I even uh, had a student who was a Trump supporter, but who went was it was actually kind of comical, was just twisting uh, herself into a pretzel in order to say that voting for Trump was not incompatible with being a Black Lives Matter supporter as she was. <laughs> That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Which, isn't that interesting? Because for her, it's it was very, it, yeah, yeah. So, so, um, I, I think that, and that's why when I read about evangelical young people, um, that huge drop in support for, for Israel, I, I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder if that's connected there because the timing seems, seems similar. So, um, young people are a lot more fluid. There's a lot 
of possibility, there's a lot less history and status quo kind of entrenched ideological baggage uh, to have to to undo, I guess, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, and I think um, for evangelicals, I think a large part of it is that they're becoming more diverse racially um, right. and ethnically and they're exposing themselves to one another. Um, right. And and tangentially, um, with regards to this veneer of reality, uh, something that's been especially striking to me as a Palestinian Arab is that, uh, you know, in DSA and in any socialist circle, you're going to come uh, around to a lot of Jewish comrades who have strong principles and who understand yes. the role in the struggle. And something that's really fascinating to me and something that's, uh, that instills me with a sense of love for my Jewish comrades is that now more than ever, likewise, something that I said at convention earlier this year as a delegate and something that I said last night to a panel of DSAOs is that it's never been a better time despite the recent media backlash and political backlash to be a Palestinian liberation organizer, to be a supporter of this. And likewise, it's never been a better time to be a Jewish anti-occupation activist in the United States. If not now, as an excellent organization. And even at organizations like J Street, and something that's not particularly uh, left wing, they identify as liberal Zionists. There's reporting at US Currents, there's reporting at other organizations that demonstrate that younger J Streeters, younger members of these groups, young people at the ADL, I saw yesterday that a, uh, a relatively senior official at the ADL resigned over Greenblatt's uh, statements against If Not Now and JVP. Um, these are young Jews who are frustrated with this this unreality, so to speak, that there's this, this Israel that does not exist. And they have a love for uh, Jews who live between the Mediterranean and Jordan. They have a love for Eretz Yisrael, which is a distinct thing from the state of Israel. And uh, because they have a love for that, they also have a love for equality and for democracy and for whether it be a state of all of its citizens or two states of equals, they have a love for the Palestinian comrades. And I think that veneer is collapsing um, and it makes it all the much more difficult for people to attack Palestinian liberation as a movement. Right. And label it anti-Semitic, which is a, which is a go-to yes. kind of uh, ad hominem attack. Yeah, absolutely. I, I found it striking. And I think this is why the ADL staffer, forgive me for not remembering his name, um, why he resigned. I found it striking that Greenblatt actually labeled if not now in JVP as the photo inverse of white supremacism. Um, I think on the contrary, um, and I think that's a direct quote, uh, I think on the contrary, being an opponent, opponent of racial supremacy, whether it be white, black, Arab, or Jewish, makes you the opposite of white supremacy. It makes you a proponent of democracy and of workers' rights and so much more. And so obviously he he lashes out because a Jew who has a different opinion from him is a threat to his, uh, to the status quo that he supports. Yeah. Boy, if there's anything this, this conflict has demonstrated, it's that, you know, the, the critique of, of Zionism from, from, you know, many like Edward uh, Said, as you were saying, or, 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 or even lefty Jews like uh, Tony Judd, uh, that, that, yes. Uh, is Zionism is basically no different at the end of the day from all the 19th century nationalisms. Um, and it carries all the same terrible problems. 
uh, and has produced, and this Israeli government, people who to 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 not to put not to put too fine a point on it, quite resemble uh, Nazis, you know, and in some cases describe themselves as as fascist, and like if that's not a demonstration of the sickness of 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 what nationalism is, you know, taken to its extremes, I I, I can't think of anything else that could possibly do it. Um, no, just and you would think the obvious like pro democracy, not just pro leftist, but but for the ideals of even this country, the putative ideals of this country, that the obvious thing would be like, how about neither Palestinian nor Jews are ethnically cleansed? Uh, how about they all have equal rights, freedom, equality, and and the ability to, to flourish together in a pluralistic state that doesn't say that any nationality ethnicity is supreme, but allows for for human rights to be protected and for flourishing to exist among people of differences like you couldn't think of something that that should fit with our uh our ideals uh, more than that and yet that seems to be the complete opposite of the actual policies of this country and it's it's something that i think over our our long history radicals have used the actual ideals as against the obvious like contrary reality politically in order to 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 slowly uh and sometimes radically shift uh, the terrain to, to make the reality match the ideals more and more and more. And I think that this is just another battleground for that international leftist, um, you know, battle to continue. Right. Yes. And I, I think, um, something that Ryan said, uh, reminds me, um, and I talked about this with a group of wonderful democratic socialists in DSA uh, roughly a week ago, um, is that something that I often see come up as a Palestinian is, uh, The Wretched of the Earth as a book. Um, a wonderful book, a really powerful, influential book for people who believe in, uh, a post-colonial world of, so to speak, a democratic world. But a lot of people don't really read past the first chapter. A lot of people only read on violence. <laughs> you see a lot of people, um, say, oh, well, armed resistance in all forms is justified. You just have, you just have to read. Fanon's uh, argument in on violence. And it's weird to treat this as a Bible and then not go to the section where he very clearly outlines and uh, interrogates how nationalism as a liberatory force can quickly transform into a system which then can impose oppression onto itself. And, uh, and I, I'm drawing a blank right now on the man, the great, uh, subcontinental author, I think Pakistani author, um, who worked with Fanon, uh, and it was a friend of Saeed and a mentor to Saeed. Um, but he notes in a wonderful documentary that I rewatched a while ago on BBC, uh, that Fanon was almost prophetic in this sense. Look at what happened to Algeria after, uh, independence. Uh, look what happened to working class Algerians. Look what happened across the wider Arab world. And in Syria and in Iraq, uh, and in, in a way in uh, Palestine with the establishment of this subcontractual occupation, occupation force with Abbas and with the, uh, Palestinian authority. Um, and so the lesson to learn as a left wingers, as democratic socialists is that yes, national liberation, but national liberation, which is directly tied to democracy and equality for all of the inhabitants of the land. Um, and so if you're a democratic socialist, I don't think we can endorse this uh, indiscriminate form of violence. Uh, certainly there's discussion to be had about strategic violence. Uh, there's 
a discussion to be had about military, intramilitary force. Um, no one can really disclude that unless they're an uh, ironclad pacifist, but, um, I don't think you can seriously subscribe to a democratic socialist worldview and then, uh, advocate murdering civilians to put a blunt right. point on it, I suppose. Yeah. 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 No, F- F- Fanon is, um, as much as there's normative claims throughout, he's also uh, doing a, you know, the psycho, psycho, psychoanalytic bit is diagnostic of like, this is what happens when you colonize, yes, terrorize, absolutely. right? So, and so it's kind of a descriptive, like explanatory thing of like, this is going to be the consequence. And he's not saying that that's good necessarily because it's in a way it's a kind of, um, you know, a, a warning to not become, uh, you know, the, the same as your oppressor and, and not to, to just, uh, re, uh, you know, keep the, the cycle of violence going. Um, and I think as you've written about so, so well, uh, the, the, the true alternative to, um, simply shifting, uh, the terrain of, of who oppresses whom and, and who does violence to whom is to end the root cause, uh, and, and end the occupation here in a way where uh, peace and justice replace the cycles of violence. And, and I think that should be a clear goal and, and a kind of prefigurative politics for leftists where who we are being and fighting justice and fighting, fighting for justice and against injustice is as important as as uh, the specific kind of uh, enemies of the moment, because um, it, it, it's 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 so important to, to, to remain clear on uh, why we're fighting and for what principles. And uh, if leftists we don't value human life, then then we become you know somewhat indistinguishable from the fascists at that point. And and uh, you know here on left anchor we want to anchor ourselves in the right kind of values and principles. <laughs> so I appreciate you saying that, Leila. Yes. Yes, I, I am, uh, last night I had the, I was one of the closing speakers on this panel and I had the great honor of reading a section from a piece published in the New York Times yesterday by, uh, the member of the Knesset for the Hadash Tal list, uh, Ayman Odeh, who is a Palestinian Arab, uh, who is a citizen of Israel. Uh, and he quoted a doctor from Gaza, uh, or a Gazan doctor at the very least. I don't, I don't remember if he's still in Gaza at the moment, but the only real revenge to murder is peace. And I think that's something that democratic socialists, uh, whether they be Palestinian or Jewish or otherwise need to center in the, uh, logic of liberation. Um, and that if we're going to build this mass movement that we're talking about, that we're trying to articulate to people, uh, that we're trying to replace the veneer of reality with, um, then uh, that's essential, in my view, anyway. Yeah, I think that's a it's probably a pretty good place to stop it. Um, uh, but yeah, Leila Sheikh, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Um, much appreciate your your uh, informed perspectives and an update on the situation. Thank you for having me. Do you want to plug anything before we let you go? Uh, yes. Um, final thoughts. There will be a free Palestine in my lifetime where Jews and Palestinians will live in equality and under democratic rule. I will go home to that land one day. Um, I am sure of it. I'm sure that many of you who are listening will be a part of this movement to create it. Um, and if you have the opportunity and you spare money, I have a PCRF, Palestine Children Reliefs Fund, uh, donation page set up. Uh, we are roughly $10,000 away from our goal. Uh, we'll make sure that that's 
went somewhere. I don't know how that works, but we'll make sure. Um, and thank you for inviting me on. I appreciate it. Of course. Wonderful. Yeah. We'll put that, uh, that, that link in the show notes. Definitely. But yeah. So, um, from your mouth to God's ear, let's hope. And, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.